Hi there, man. Welcome back. And I wanted to do a little research on Prince. What did Prince die from? According to AP News, an autopsy found he died of an accidental overdose of fentanyl, a synthetic opioid 50 times more powerful than heroin. Authorities say it is likely Prince didn't know he was taking the dangerous drug, which was laced in counterfeit pills made to look like a generic version of the painkiller Vicodin. There you go. He thought, sounds to me like he thought he was taking a Vicodin, a painkiller. Um, and that's pretty suspicious, actually. Um, curious if he had a <clears throat> history of drug usage. He seemed to be a pretty driven person. I don't think, I mean, he's LDS, Latter-day Saints. He's a Mormon. Or is that Mormon? The same thing, right? Or no? Um, Jehovah's Witness, that's what it is. LDS Latter-day Saints. He's a Jehovah's Witness, not a Mormon. Sorry, Spirit of Prince. Anyway, he he was pretty amazing musician and person. I've listened to many of the interviews he's done before on my podcasts. And he talked about chemtrails, for example. About how he noticed that in his neighborhoods when growing up when these chemtrails would go overhead. He noticed that people would fight, started fighting. And this is an APnews.com article. It says... Investigation says Prince was isolated, addicted, and in pain. April 20, 2018. Published. Minneapolis AP. After Prince had to be revived from a drug overdose a week before his death, one friend told the musical superstar that he needed to stop taking painkillers. Okay, so he was apparently addicted to painkillers. But Prince said he couldn't. His hands hurt so much that if he quit, he'd have to stop performing hands hurt so much. Piano tour, I think, was getting to his hands. Okay. Singer Judith Hill told investigators, according to a transcript of her interview, those words found amid hundreds of pages of interviews between investigators and Prince's closest confidants provide insight into just how much the man known for his energetic performances and larger-than-life personality was suffering. Documents open parts of Prince's life that the intensely private celebrity tried to keep from even his closest confidants. How did he hide this so well, Prince's closest friend and bodyguard Kirk Johnson said in an interview with detectives. While Johnson said he didn't realize that opioids were a problem until that overdose, he had noticed Prince was unwell before that and took him to a doctor. How, when was this? And unwell in what sense? In their zeal to protect Prince's privacy, Carver County attorney Mark Metz said some of the singer's friends might have enabled him. 
Prince was 57 when he was found alone and unresponsive in an elevator at his Paisley Park studio compound. 57, wow. In suburban Minneapolis on April 21, 2016. I remember that. Um, an autopsy found he died of an accidental overdose of fentanyl, a synthetic opioid, 50 times more powerful than heroin. Authorities say it is likely Prince didn't know he was taking the dangerous drug, which was laced in counterfeit pills made to look like a generic version oh shit of the painkiller Vicodin. So did somebody give this to him saying that this is Vicodin? It's a painkiller? The source of those pills is unknown. Why the fuck is it unknown? And no one has been charged in Prince's death. Why the fuck not? Authorities say Dr. Michael Todd Schulenberg admitted that he prescribed another drug, oxycodone, under Johnson's name to protect Prince's privacy. Who's Johnson? Johnson. Johnson is bodyguard. Closest friend and bodyguard. Okay. Uh, oxycodone. Codon. Schulenberg disputes that. Under Johnson. That but paid... Thirty thousand to settle allegations the drug was prescribed illegally to settle allegations. <sighs> okay. Privacy is a theme in interviews with investigators. So how did he get this like so called counterfeit Vicodin? Got an incoming call from somebody I don't know. Instagram. Fuck off. How about I block this motherfucker? Okay. The fuck is Zacky Zack? All right. Privacy is a theme in interviews with investigators. I'm gonna block this motherfucker. Zacky Zack 35. Fuck off. The fuck is this Zacky Zack 35? I'm gonna check it out. Thirty-five. Who the fuck is this person? Shield results. Um. She don't need no Instagram.
this is called it's like a zacky zack okay it was only news I have an admirer, apparently. Okay. Privacy is a theme in interviews with investigators Joshua Welton, who co-produced some of Prince's work, and Hannah Welton. The drummer in the Prince-created band Third Eye Girl said they were like Prince's family. Joshua Welton described Prince's inner circle at the time of his death as very, 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 very tight, including Johnson assistant Maron and the Weltons. He said he had seen little of Prince's sister, Tyka Nelson, in recent years. He's made comments like, you guys are more family to me than my blood relatives, Welton said. Johnson and Hill were on Prince's plane when he overdosed on the way back from an April 14, 2016 concert in Atlanta. Hill said that Prince told her he was depressed Enjoyed sleeping more than usual and was incredibly bored. He told her after a show that he thought he was going to fall asleep on stage. Huh. The plane made an emergency landing in Moline, Illinois. By the way, I heard that, I believe it was Rupert Murdoch. He was on, wasn't he on Rupert Murdoch's plane? So he might have been poisoned by Murdoch, maybe? I don't know. Just a conspiracy idea. Possible conspiracy theory. Ah. The plane made an emergency landing in Moline, Illinois, and after Johnson carried Prince from the plane like you would carry a little kid or a baby, paramedics had to use two doses of a medicine that reverses the effects of an opioid overdose. When Prince took a large gasp of air and woke up, he looked at Johnson without saying anything, and Johnson told paramedics, Prince feels fine. According to documents... Two doses. He had to have two doses. Is that the narc, uh, whatever? At the hospital, Prince refused medical tests. He told Hill that he had just mixed two pills, that he was a good judge of his body and wouldn't do it again. Once he told him no more pills right, he wouldn't agree. Oxy, so it was oxycodone and uh, fentanyl, maybe, that he was mixing, maybe. He said something like, well, then that means I can't perform because my hands are hurting. My hands hurt, according to a transcript of our interview with investigators. He should have, he should have fucking stopped the, you know, should have canceled the, shows or, or uh, no, too much. Investigative materials released Thursday include several other interviews, documents, photos, and videos. There are pictures of pills that were found in various bottles in several different rooms. 
Authorities have said many of those pills were not in their proper containers and many were counterfeit. Oh my god. Various bottles in several different rooms. Wow. Many of those pills were not in their proper containers and many were counterfeit. What the fuck? Why were they counterfeit? Where was he getting the counterfeit ones? Documents include interviews with Schulenberg and Prince's inner circle, including Johnson, who told investigators he had noticed Prince looking like just a little frail, but said he did not realize he had an opioid addiction until the overdose on the plane. After that, Johnson said he and others reached out to an addiction specialist. But Johnson had initially contacted Schulenberg, his own doctor, to treat Prince in the fall of 2015. Schulenberg told investigators that Johnson texted him on April 7, 2016, saying Prince was complaining of numbness and tingling in one of his legs and in his hands and had vomited the night before. Schulenberg prescribed some medications under Johnson's name and gave Prince an IV, according to documents. Schulenberg asked Prince if he was taking anything for his hands, and Prince said yes, but did not know what it was. Oh my God, Prince. <sighs> documents show. Johnson also called Schillenberg on the day of the Atlanta concert before the flight on which Prince overdosed and asked the doctor to give Prince a painkiller. Authorities say Schillenberg did so under Johnson's name. Johnson contacted Schillenberg again on April 18 and expressed concern that Prince was struggling with opioids. Schillenberg last treated Prince the night before he died conducting a urinalysis that tested positive for opioids. Shit, man. Should have been more careful, Prince. What's with this counterfeit bullshit? Meanwhile, Johnson and others had reached out to addiction specialist Howard Kornfeld, who dispatched his son to Paisley Park to try to convince Prince to seek treatment. Well... Andrew Cornfield showed up the following morning. He was amongst, among those who found Prince dead. Oh, man. <sighs> Associated Press writers Steve Karnowski and Doug Glass in Minneapolis, Ryan J. Foley in Iowa City, Iowa, and Tammy Weber in Chicago contributed to this report. Follow Amy Forleti. On Twitter. Tampa settles lawsuit over parental leave for male workers. Seattle Hospital says Texas Attorney General asked for records about transgender uh, treatment in their hospital. Houston the State Supreme Court Justice sent to spread false information while pushing trans health care ban and restrictions, the judge said. an asshole. Okay. Anyway. Surprise. Yeah. Hello. Hello. How are you? See, I was thinking of maybe doing a TikTok bio 
pick in short installments, you know, like maybe three minutes here in three minute installments. Never want to be your weekend lover. Only want to be some kind of friend. Baby, I could never steal you from another. Such a shame my friendship had to end. Purple rain, purple rain. Okay, so. What else? Oh, by the way, I don't have any reviews yet for my podcast. Although it's like a third of a million downloads. So, could any of you guys... Please go and give me a five-star review. I'd really appreciate it So to help with the algorithm because otherwise law enforcement is just, you know, stifling me. They're geofencing me now for several years. <sighs> Surveilling me without a warrant. And uh, I need your help. Thanks. Bye. Okay, so welcome back, and I thought it would be fun to look up a YouTube, maybe a little Prince documentary. There's a shit ton of Prince fans out there, so I bet this would be appreciated. Never want to be your weekend lover. I only want to be some kind of friend. Okay, Prince Documentary 2018 on Malta Babe. 1.5 million views five years ago. Every word spoken by the artist Prince in this dramatized film is based on archive sources and first-hand accounts. Prince. Outrageous. Iconoclastic. Oozing charisma. Five foot three rock god, and a man who very few people truly knew or understood. I felt that he was super cautious, like he had trust issues. I felt that's why I was called a lot of the time, because I just think he wanted to have people around him that he felt safe with. At the heart of Prince is someone who was consumed by music and needed everyone around him to understand that. song that became Prince's theme tune and the iconic film of the same name was an anthem and a story of redemption. It established Prince, the superstar, and resonated around the world with 22 million sales. Back in the game. Prince is the equivalent of uh, a musical Einstein, if you may, combined with a little bit of Mozart. Three, four. Prince's genius was never in question. Yet the seeds of his self-destruction were sown long before he became a star. I don't think he ever felt true love. I don't think he ever felt true acceptance. Prince shot to global fame, propelled by the need to free himself from his past. He never escaped the guilt and shame of his early years. It was beyond an obsession. It was a compulsion. 
Prince expressed his deepest feelings in his music. Please, Lord, spare me. And he wove his childhood trauma into iconic songs and timeless hits like When Doves Cry. I just want to come back in the house. I'm cold, Dad. Life is very tough when you're a 12-year-old, short, teased African-American with no money who can't come home. His damaged past compelled Prince to look for home and family in all the wrong places. His childhood, tainted by sex, set him on a collision course, personally and professionally. Do you really believe that the young people of America should be listening to this kind of thing? Not at all, ma'am. <laughs> to protect himself from the world, Prince built his own private palace and named it Paisley Park. We used to say he was the lonely guy. We used to call him the lonely guy because we didn't want him to be lonely. Throughout his life, Prince cut himself off from those who loved him and could help him. He was like a son to me. I was like a dad to him. Prince abstained from recreational drugs, yet died on the 21st of April 2016, aged 57, following a lethal overdose of painkillers. So the person is dead here. I just could not believe it. I said, no, this is, can't be true. But it was true. Prince, above all, wanted to fly with the angels. And yet his demons would finally catch up with him. What if everybody around me split? I'd be left with only me. I'd have to fend for me. Icon, genius, slave, the Prince story. Prince, one of the world's most successful musicians, died alone behind the wire in the fortress he created. There was no one to help him. As I got to know Prince, I became pretty clear that he had some pretty serious Alan issues. Prince's tour manager. Prince spent his whole life unhappy. I think he spent his whole life Chris alone. Chris Prince's first producer. I think he was afraid of life in the sense that it hadn't always been kind to him. He looked towards the end of his life. You could see he was trying to repair his childhood. Even that shot of him riding his bicycle around his complex in Paisley Park, he just looked like he was a kid again. He even went back to how his hair used to be in the 70s, his big afro. If you look at him, he went full circle, came back to being that little boy again. Prince's story starts and ends in Minneapolis, capital of Minnesota in the Midwest. Born in 1958, Prince was different from the start. He was given a rock star's name, Prince Rogers Nelson. Most of my friends in New York would say, why are you in Minneapolis? <laughs> there are no black people there. <laughs> <laughs> the odds were stacked against them at a very early age, simply into the community he was born into, Terry a certain amount of poverty, Prince's tour being black in Minnesota, especially in the 60s. <laughs> Prince
Prince's father, John Lewis Nelson, and his mother, Matty Shaw Nelson, were an outwardly respectable, God-fearing couple. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. The family were Seventh-day Adventists, a strict Christian sect that discourages smoking and drinking and believes failing to walk next to God defiles the human spirit. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. Prince's parents prayed for their son because they feared he was different from everyone else. Prince would open up about this for the first time four decades later. I've never spoken about this before, but I was born epileptic. And uh, I used to have seizures when I was young. And uh, my mother and father didn't know what to do or how to handle it. Some religious communities saw epilepsy as a gift from God. Mostly it was seen as insanity, or worse still, possession by the devil. With no greater sin than a seizure in church. Don't let me down, honey. You know what they'll do to you in church if it happens again. But sometimes I can't help myself, Mom. Just put your trust in God. You don't need me to protect you, child. You're a big boy now. You're my big, brave boy. You're my big, brave, talented boy. Huh? Prince's condition threatened to bring the family to breaking point. John Lewis Nelson's job in a factory could barely support his wife and children, let alone pay medical bills. Someone in the crowd replied, Teacher, I brought you my son, who has a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they were unable. How long must I remain here with you? How long must I put up with you? He was so deeply ashamed. What people don't understand, I think, is his You're sense of shame. Journalist and friend. The stigma of epilepsy would haunt Prince echoing through his life for years to come. When performing his 1994 track, The Sacrifice of Victor, Prince can be seen miming a strange seizure of fit. I was born on a bloodstained table. Cord around my neck. The lyrics describe how he became epileptic through a difficult birth and then emerged a victor over his affliction. My mother told me one day I walked into her and said, uh, Mom, I'm not going to be sick anymore. And she said, why? And I said, because an angel told me so. Now, I don't remember saying it. That's just what she told me. Hmm. As a boy, Prince was taken to see his father play in a downtown club on Hampton Avenue, Minneapolis something Prince would never forget. A production line worker and religious zealot by day, John Lewis Nelson was a jazz pianist by night. Y'all sure looking real cozy up there tonight. All right, 
Let's enjoy ourselves. He gave himself the stage name, Prince. The same name he called his son. On stage, John Lewis Nelson was not the father Prince knew. No Bible, no lectures, just all the forbidden fruits, wine, women, song. loved him. Yet John Lewis Nelson would never make it as a professional musician. Financial pressure meant he could not quit his day job. He smoked and drank at home, despite telling others not to do so. A bitter man, he would become deeply jealous of his son. A really brilliant musician in John Nelson, but also very narcissistic, selfish, man who is a far better musician than he was a father. Please, Daddy. Please, Daddy. Will you teach me to play? This is a fine instrument, Prince. It's not a toy! Think you're better than me, do you? Get out of here. I gotta practice. I got a gig tonight. Travis Smiley um, Show, 2009. My father was, he was so hard on me. He, he, I was never good enough. And there was something about that, it was like, almost like the army when it came to music. <laughs> John Lewis Nelson gave his son a musician's name and then refused to help him play. Ruled by a religious man who did not practice what he preached, Prince grew up in a world tainted by hypocrisy. In my household, with my grandparents, Mr. we Perry. very much knew that that was wrong and you weren't allowed to do this, but you were allowed to do that. It was either you were a Christian or you weren't. There was none of this mixing it, but I think with Prince it was a little bit more complicated. The contradictions of his childhood marked Prince. From the beginning, he wrestled with angels and demons, setting a pattern he would repeat throughout his life, trying and failing to keep his demons at bay. Prince story. Yep. Guys are still there. Thanks for 310, 311K, even if it's just law enforcement. Problems of his early childhood, the epilepsy, the powerful father and weak mother left Prince feeling vulnerable, unsure of what was right and what was wrong. 
So there were times he had to look in the mirror and just really, really wonder what is his purpose on this planet. Mm. At school, things were no better. Prince was the short black kid with the name everyone laughed at. He had told me when he was very young, remember okay. I met him when he was 16, when he wanted what most in life was to become famous. <laughs> Music wasn't his first love. His first love was really basketball. Prince shot hoops hour after hour. Yet the one thing he really needed for basketball was beyond his reach. He was on teams, and I think he, he, he really he really came into himself. But as he got older, he stopped growing. When he finally realized that basketball wasn't going to be a dream he was going to be able to realize because of how tall he was, I think he turned to music and, and poured all of his heart and soul into that. Being short would not stop Prince from becoming a musician. One, two, three, four. Sex Machine, I was sure that was one of the records that probably influenced him. If only because the very unique style of playing bass, which was a turning point for young black musicians. Prince more than once mentioned to me riding his bike after school to the record store to get the new James Brown 45 that he just had to have. Prince played obsessively every night in a friend's basement, teaching himself as many instruments as he could. Throwing himself into music with guts and soul. He did not want to fail at anything. He had that desire that he is going to win. He's going to do every single thing that he can. And if he don't make it, it's not going to be his fault. Prince chose a hard path. Everyone said a black artist could never succeed in Minneapolis. That's why his own father struggled to break through. Minneapolis, when I started my recording studio, was a kind of a cow town. I mean, it was it was a very white country rock uh, environment. Back in Brooklyn, we had black radio stations, like four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten radio stations. Here they had one. Prince set out to prove everyone else wrong, as he would repeatedly do throughout his life. After three years of mastering guitar, keyboards, and drums, the groundwork paid off, as Prince later recalled on the Tavis Smiley show. I taught myself how to play music, and I just stuck with it, and I did it all the time. And sooner or later, uh, people in the neighborhood heard about me, and then they started to talk about me. The word had spread throughout the black community that there was a place you could go and there was this Englishman over there that loved, loved recording uh, R&B and black music. So when he was 15 and I came here, he was playing with Grand Central. That was his band. was contacted by the mother of the band who was the manager nice to meet you and she contacted me and she said she wanted to do a, a demo tape 
I don't need your charity, Mr. Moon. I got my money. I can pay. And so this lady that had brought this group into the studio that was producing them, you know, really had the support, I think, of the community, and, and, and everyone kind of helped them. This boy here on the block, he plays everything, and I mean everything. So I started listening to him, and I realized he had talent. Okay, after that child, Mr. Moon, he don't say much. But he got a volcano of emotions under the surface. And I realized he could play all the instruments. And I thought, this is the answer to my prayers. So after months and months and months of working with Prince, very, very close basis, producing this music, I had him named. We had his first big song packaged up, soft and wet. We had his identity created. And we had his demo tape built. And so now it was time to go to the next step. Soft and wet, 1978. The first time I heard Soft and Wet, that song, I was immediately like blown away because I just felt it sounded so different to everything else. By 1978, Prince had his first recording contract and his first manager. What struck me was the depth of the music that was being made. It did not sound like one person playing all the instruments. I hear this falsetto come in of this. It, it was a vulnerable. There was a vulnerability to the voice that immediately caught my attention. Prince always set the rules. He said everything must be done as he wanted. Warner Brothers, Prince's record label, found this out the hard way. We're so excited, Prince. This sounds great. The label sent me down from A&R just to listen in for a bit. Just wondering about the bass line on this track. What do you think? A little bit more, a little bit less? Get out of my studio. <laughs> what did he say? <laughs> He says that to everyone. <laughs> it was clear that there were other issues that went into his personality and his impatience, his demanding <laughs> perfectionism that went beyond a normal perfectionist. He just wanted to prove that, hey, I'm somebody. I got something to say. And I want you people to experience what I have to say. It wasn't like we said, hey, kid, we think we can make you a star. Let's put you on our journey. No, he was on a journey. And I always felt that, you know, if we could just support him through that, because he knows what he wants. Once Prince, the unknown boy from Minneapolis, signed his first $1 million record deal. He was on his way to becoming one of the world's greatest rock stars. Success would bring Prince the power and identity he craved, while the exposure of fame would always be painful for him. This first became clear in 1979. Soon after being signed by Warner Brothers, Prince's single, I Want to Be Your Lover, shot to number 11 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. 
To promote it, Prince went on Dick Clark's American Bandstand. All went well, until Dick Clark came to interview him. You made a couple of demonstration records when you were a teenager. You're barely more than that now, are you? Nineteen. Nineteen. How many years ago did you did you make these demos and then uh, have offers on them? Prince clammed up and could hardly speak. He comes back from Los Angeles. He comes over my house, and I go, "What the? What's wrong with you? What happened, man? What? You know, you're on the national TV show." Dick Clark is asking you these questions, and what happened? I, Because I know he's not like that. And why would you turn it down? Um, they wouldn't let me produce myself. You were 15 at the time. Yeah. Would they think you didn't know what you were doing? Don't know. I, I just couldn't get it. And he said to me, he said, Pepe, he said, at that very moment, I realized that millions of people watching me did somebody tell me you played every instrument on this album is that correct maybe no that's it you're very shy modest how many how many instruments do you play and at that point he just froze and he told me right after that he says you know he says that will never happen again then he started controlling all of his interviews because he didn't like that feeling he didn't like that feeling. He wasn't in control. After the humiliation of American Bandstand, Prince agreed to only a handful of press interviews for the rest of his career. In 1985, age 27, Prince gave a rare glimpse of the man behind the mask when he was persuaded to speak to Rolling Stone magazine. This would be the most honest interview he ever gave. Prince would only talk if certain conditions were met. Rather than being at home, he was at the wheel of a Ford Thunderbird, taking the reporter around Minneapolis. Prince was in the driver's seat, and if things got too revealing, he could always drive away. I'm not used to this. I really thought I'd never do interviews again. Prince agreed to open up, because the Rolling Stone writer, like him, was a local boy. We were born at the same hospital, almost a year apart. Uh, my father went to what the same the school. Friend, same, uh, my, both my parents. There have been a lot of things said about me, and a lot of them were wrong. I don't mind criticisms. I just don't like lies. When he motioned me to get in his car, he struck me as incredibly shy, but there was something wrong. The story Prince told was of someone who would struggle all his life to escape his childhood. There was a void that could never be filled. The things that happen to us as children are so seared in our brains and they never leave it. And especially at such a young age. Y'all are still there, man. This is pretty good stuff. Great. I think when one discovers himself, he discovers God. When Prince agreed to be interviewed by Rolling Stone magazine in 1985, he was at 27 a superstar. 
It was also sending the American establishment into a frenzy of disapproval. One critic said Prince's taboo-breaking lyrics were gushing with lust. Tipper Gore, wife of Senator <laughs> Al Gore, set up the Parents' Music Resource Center to protect the young people of America. Remember I wrote a story Top of about the list that. of Tipper's so-called Filthy 15 from a range of different artists was Prince's song Darling Nikki. Tipper wanted to send out a warning. Buyer beware. Tipper Gore. for my daughter. <laughs> we heard the song Let's Go Crazy on the radio, and Prince <laughs> is a musical genius. I agree with that, and I like some of his music. But I didn't feel like the song Darling Nikki was appropriate for my 11-year-old and my 8- and my 6-year-old. you want to read the couple of lines from <laughs> Darling Nikki that you find offensive? I'd be glad to. It says, um, uh... I met, there, I met a girl named Nikki. Guess you could say she was a sex fiend. I met her in a hotel lobby masturbating with a magazine. <laughs> you just said it, girl. Shame on you, fucking hypocrite. Let's hear it. <laughs> Do you really believe that the young people of America should be listening to this kind of thing? Not at all, ma'am. Completely unacceptable. So what's the plan? How are we going to stop people buying this music? Uh, well, ma'am, I've spoken to the Recording Industry and Association of America. They've said they will be willing to consider some kind of warning or packaging to the outside of the disc. I've uh, worked something up here, ma'am. A prototype warning parental advisory explicit content. You think it will work? My honest opinion, ma'am, teenagers want this music, and they're going to want it even more if we put the stickers on. You have so little faith in the youth of America? Meet me at 2 o'clock. In the conference room, Michael. The impact was, of course, ironically, positive. Because <laughs> there were acres of press coverage of <laughs> this. And people thought, gee, I've got to hear what this is all about. <laughs> so there were probably about it. half a million people who heard Darling Nikki, who otherwise would not have heard it. Thanks <laughs> to typical. <laughs> he realize that the sexual component Thanks, was Tipper. something that could be marketed and be Fuck used you, to, to empower <laughs> him uh, with the fans and, and, and empower his music. Prince's explicit lyrics were not just written to shock and to sell records. They came from somewhere deep inside, from when he was young, too young. So which one of your parents are you more like? My dad and me were one of the same. He's a little sick, just like I am. It takes the music to get him going. My mom's the wild side of me. Wild She's like side. that all the time. Wild side. What Prince way? grew up in a sexually charged household. Why? His mother, Matty, 
was an aspiring singer when she met Prince's dad. Even after two children came along, Matty Shaw was still out at night trying to restart her career. Hmm. I've often wondered about Prince's relationship with his mother. I didn't know her well. Alan leads Prince's and met her manager. Long after Prince was established as a celebrity, and it comes to mind that as a nightclub singer hmm. with a very outgoing personality, um. It must have been a little puzzling for a young kid to know that his mother is wearing tight dresses and flirting with people from the stage of a nightclub, singing sexy songs. Don't tell me you ain't seen these before. Their frustrations as musicians set Prince's parents at each other's throats. In 1968, when Prince was 10, the marriage ended. Matty quickly took up with another man and then decided... The time was right to begin Prince's sex education. I know that in his interview with Chris Rock on MTV some years ago, he mentioned the fact that at about age 10, I think he said she showed him a Playboy magazine. I think there was some sort of plan to uh, initiate me 1997. heavy and quick. So I was it's given one to one. Playboy magazines. And, Get out of here. Yeah, and there was uh, erotic literature to um, initiate me heavy and quick at, at about age 10 i think he said she showed him a playboy magazine i think there was some sort of plan to um, initiate me heavy and quick so i was given playboy magazines and, Get out of here. yeah and there was um, huh. erotic literature laying around that was very easily picked up and um you know i am um, it was pretty heavy at the time heavy Reading Matty's magazines as a child left Prince confused about his own sexuality and about a mother who gave him pornography when all he needed was love. Hmm. Was she someone who was perhaps concerned out of some kind of ignorance that, that her sensitive, artistic-prone young son might be gay and will... I'll find out. I'll show him a Playboy and see how he reacts. You know, it's, it's, you know who knows why or what actually happened, but it just doesn't sound like the normal upbringing of most most young kids. Prince's background was unstable, and his sexual identity was unstable. We were on the plane going to North Carolina. So he was disgusted. He had an afro, right? He gets up and he goes to the bathroom. He takes his bag and he goes to the bathroom. He comes back after, and I'm looking at my watch. I'm going like, gee, man, this guy's been in there for a long time. You know what? He comes back and he's got curlers in his hair. <laughs> he was in the bathroom curling his hair. <laughs> so he comes out and I go, I'm looking at him going like, oh, I didn't say anything, you know, because I didn't know. Maybe he was a switch hitter. Maybe he was gay. Maybe he was straight. Maybe I didn't know, you know. And so I didn't say nothing. He sat back down and we just continued on. As a rock star, Prince would always be surrounded by women. He was linked with his backing singers and co-stars throughout his career. 
and yet intimacy would be problematic all through his life. When he did get signed, that's when the girls started coming. And we'd be walking, you know, down the street or something, and the girls would say, hi, Prince, you know, hi, Prince, hello, Prince, you know. And the Prince would look at me and say, Peppy, you know, last year that girl wouldn't even talk to me. I saw him as straight because of all these gals that are around him, but um, I did often think that maybe he wasn't really interested in sex, which seems so bizarre, really. (laughs) Sexual ambiguity, never feeling normal, problems with intimacy. Prince toyed with his public for years, constantly exposing different aspects of his sexual being. He dressed up or didn't dress. Sometimes he presented himself as hypersexual. Sometimes as buttoned up. And sometimes both at the same time. When I saw what he looked like, I couldn't believe it. Because I thought, oh, he's cute. But he's got, like, suspenders on and some sort of thing, crutch thing going on, covering his crutch. I was like, whoa. And then he had on, like, heels, like, over-the-knee boots. and I mean, he was really out there. So I've got to ask, why the high heels? People say I always wear high heels because I'm short. I wear high heels because women like them. His energy was super male. I mean, alpha male. He looked like... I couldn't believe him. Prince toyed with his public for years, constantly exposing different aspects of his sexual being. He dressed up... or didn't dress. Sometimes he presented himself as hypersexual. Sometimes as buttoned up sometimes both at the same time when i saw what he looked like i couldn't believe it because i thought oh he's cute but he's got like suspenders on and some sort of thing crutch thing going on covering his crutch i was like whoa (laughs) and then he had on like heels like over the knee boots and i mean he was really out there (laughs) so i've got to ask why the high heels People say I always wear high heels because I'm short. I wear high heels because women like them. (laughs) His energy was super male. I mean, alpha male. There was no feeling for me with him whenever I was with him. I never felt effeminate. He's really a man. That's what I'm trying to say. He was the black guy that was pushing boundaries like David Bowie was for white guys. Bowie pushed it, and Prince was our black Bowie. Bowie. And then one iconic record changed the game. In his 1984 album, Purple Rain, Prince laid bare without ambiguity the demons of his childhood. Shame and self-blame. For me, it was all autobiographical because he was a troubled kid. I mean, you know, from the get-go, he was different. (laughs) And that's tough. After his parents' marriage fell apart, 
prince felt completely alone in the world. So do your parents have much of a relationship with each other? These days, my parents live very close to each other, but they don't talk. So once your mother remarried, she took less care of you. I'm guessing you spent more time with your dad after that. His sister stayed with Matty, while Prince was made to shuffle between his mother and his father. Soon, Prince was bringing girls back, flouting his father's authority and testing his affection. And then you and your dad didn't get along. And when you were 12, he threw you out for fooling around with a girl, is that right? I called my dad, and I begged him to take me back after he kicked me out. But he said no. So I called my sister and asked her to ask him to take me back. So she did. And afterwards, she told me that all I had to do was call him back and say I was sorry. Well, you know he's into girls, though. Dad. Please just wait. I just want to come back in the house. I'm cold, Dad. Just, just listen, please, Dad. Dad, just listen to me, please. I won't do it again. Just let me back in the house. Dad. Listen to me. Dad. Wait. Dad. 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 Twelve years old, and you didn't have a home? I sat crying at that phone booth for two hours. That's the last time I cried. Taken in by relatives, Prince would never live with either of his parents again. He wrote about the pain of their rejection in the first best-selling single from his Purple Rain album. The minute I heard when doves cry, I was instantly a fan. That, that first guitar riff, and then just that beat with, with no bass in it, you know, and it just instantly just kind of grabbed me. Dig if you will, you Prince set the scene. He's caught with a girl. The consequences are hard and immediate. His mother's gone, and now his father has pushed him away. Prince blames both his parents, holding them equally responsible for casting him out and also blaming himself for his isolation. When doves cry, it all speaks to this general lack of security that he had. The fact that he seemed to spend his whole life trying to accumulate a, a security blanket. What if everybody around me split? I'd be left with only me. I'd have to fend for me. <laughs> Prince.
Prince first performed the title track from Purple Rain at the First Avenue nightclub, still standing in Minneapolis. He sings about trying to forgive his parents and made this song the theme tune to his first feature film. He wasn't a man to talk a lot, but my gosh, his music, he said everything in it. He told you everything that he was thinking and doing in his music. If you want to know what Prince was, just listen to his words. Purple Rain is one long metaphor for a violent storm of rage followed by a new beginning. When he said the song is called Purple Rain, I immediately said, yes, it's what's coming down from the heavens. Good. The skies swell with a purple-violet blue. It's gorgeous. It's threatening, and you know, boy, it's going to come down. Get safe. Or celebrate with a big umbrella. After it was tightened up in the studio... The band members understood Purple Rain was Prince's masterpiece. I don't believe it. You're starting to get it. You're really starting to get it. It's a funk song that's an orchestral masterpiece that's a rock song that's a ballad that's a metal song that's a anthem once the royalties started rolling in from purple rain prince tried to win back the parental approval he craved he bought his father a car and gave him a house they played pool together another great break uh, you win at this game john lewis nelson seemed to accept his son back in his life back in the game then criticized Prince's music, saying there were too many swear words. It's real hard for my dad to show emotion. He never says I love you. Whenever we try to hug or something, we bang our heads together like some Charlie Chaplin movie. So I'm a hugger. I just love to hug people. <laughs> I think it's, it's a great way of expressing, you know, your love and openness. I tried it a couple times with Prince. Hmm, strange reaction. He was a person that probably needed and wanted and was craving a hug more than anyone on the planet. And he was so stiff and so shocked. I'm not sure that it had happened much to him before. Uh, it was really an alien experience, and I'm not sure that he really understood how to process it. I do believe that it, it is what he wanted and needed, perhaps more than anything. By the mid-1980s, Prince had three Grammy Awards, five sold-out tours, seven albums, and eight top ten hits. Yet it wasn't making him happy. He says, it's very, very lonely. I know I've got, I'm getting fame and everybody 
loves my music. He says, but I'm so lonely. He says, you're the only person that's ever done anything without wanting something back. He says, everyone around me seems to want something. I don't know what their motivations are, but he says, I know they all want something for themselves. He says, I never dreamt that being famous would be so lonely. The answer for Prince was to build his own protected world where he would feel secure and loved. In 1985, construction began on Paisley Park in Chanhassen, a suburb of Minneapolis. It was an amazing facility. The upstairs was a wardrobe facility where Prince would go and get fitted for his clothing and had custom-designed costuming. He had an apartment in there, his full recording studio in each one of the Studio A, Studio B, and then a full video and film facility that he could rehearse his concerts inside. So it was like a creative mecca. So you can live anywhere, New York or L.A., why come home? Just because I love it here so much. I can go out and not get jumped on. It feels good not to be hassled. On the way up, it becomes harder and harder of who you can trust. And I think Minnesotans are kind of a trustworthy bunch of Scandinavians. He wanted that sense of community, and I don't think he was, he would have got that from L.A. or New York. And, and I think that's why he really stayed in, in Minneapolis. Paisley Park cost $10 million to build. A colossal spend his whole life trying to accumulate a, a security blanket. What if everybody around me split? I'd be left with only me. I'd have to fend for me. Prince first performed the title track from Purple Rain at the First Avenue nightclub, still standing in Minneapolis. He sings about trying to forgive his parents and made this song the theme tune to his first feature film. He wasn't a man to talk a lot, but my gosh, his music, he said everything in it. He told you everything that he was thinking and doing in his music. If you want to know what Prince was, just listen to his words. Rain is one long metaphor for a violent storm of rage followed by a new beginning. When he said the song is called Purple Rain, I immediately said, Yes, it's what's coming down from the heavens. Good. The skies swell with a purple violet blue. It's gorgeous. It's threatening, and you know, boy, it's going to come down. Get safe. Or celebrate with a big umbrella. was tightened up in the studio, the band members understood Purple Rain was Prince's masterpiece. I don't believe it. You're starting to get it. You're really starting to get it. It's a funk song that's an orchestral masterpiece that's a rock song that's a ballad rock that's anthem. a metal song that's a anthem once the royalties started rolling in from purple rain 
Prince tried to win back the parental approval he craved. He bought his father a car and gave him a house. They played pool together. Another great break. Uh, you win at this game. John Lewis Nelson seemed to accept his son back in his life. Back in the game. Then criticized Prince's music, saying there were too many swear words. It's real hard for my dad to show emotion. He never says I love you. Whenever we try to hug or something, we bang our heads together like some Charlie Chaplin movie. So I'm a hugger. I just love to hug people. <laughs> I think it's, it's a great way of expressing, you know, your love and openness. I tried it a couple times with Prince. Hmm, strange reaction. He was a person that probably needed and wanted and was craving a hug <laughs> more than anyone on the planet. And he was so stiff and so shocked i'm not sure that it had happened much to him before uh, it was really an alien experience and i'm not sure that he really understood how to process it i do believe that it it is what he wanted and needed perhaps more than anything poor guy By the mid-1980s, Prince had three Grammy Awards, five sold-out tours, seven albums, and eight top ten hits. Yet it wasn't making him happy. He says, it's very, very lonely. I know I've got, I'm getting fame and everybody loves my music. He says, but I'm so lonely. He says, you're the only person that's ever done anything without wanting something back. He says, everyone around me seems to want something. I don't know what their motivations are, but he says, I know they all want something for themselves. He says, I never dreamt that being famous would be so lonely. The answer for Prince was to build his own protected world where he would feel secure and loved. In 1985, construction began on Paisley Park in Chanhassen, a suburb of Minneapolis. It was an amazing facility. The upstairs was a wardrobe facility where Prince would go and get fitted for his clothing and had custom-designed costuming. He had an apartment in there, his full recording studio in each one of the Studio A, Studio B, and then a full video and film facility that he could rehearse his concerts inside. So it was like a creative mecca. <laughs> I ordered a fire marshal stairs out to the new cliff. So you can live anywhere, New York or LA. Why come home? Just because I love it here so much. I can go out and not get jumped on. It feels good not to be hassled. On the way up, it becomes harder and harder of who you okay. can trust. I think Minnesotans are kind of a trustworthy bunch of Scandinavians. He wanted that sense of community, and I don't think he was, he would have got that from L.A. or New Mike York, and, and I think DJ. that's why he really stayed in, in Minneapolis. Paisley Park cost $10 million to build, a colossal 55,000 square feet, as big as the White House. <laughs> it was above all where Prince could be Prince. He was 28 years old, and this was the first place he could truly call home. 
he was known as the Great Gatsby of Minneapolis or, or even the Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And I just remember going out there, you know, the first time. I hadn't seen Prince come out yet or anything, but with his band members and everybody else there, they just made you feel welcome and made you feel like a part of the family. Growing up, Prince's musical talents were ignored by his mother and resented by his father. Paisley Park would house a new kind of family, where Prince and Prince's music would always be front and center. Prince created uh, this environment which he could control, where his studio could be where he Told lived. Bettini, uh, so you could just get up and make a record. Uh, you didn't have to go to the record plant or any of the other famous studios. And uh, this meant that uh, the people around him were on demand. And he could page them and say, I want to make a record now. Prince built a temple to himself, surrounded it with a wire fence, and then expected others around him to follow his path and no other. He would encourage those of us who worked for him at the oh, time indeed. that we opened Paisley, that we should all Tremendous. move out to Chanhassen and be nearby. One day we'll have a gated community and we'll all live inside. Hmm. And it, 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 it got to the point where it was, it was starting to get kind of Howard Hughes, Jim Jones, you know, just like when, do, when, are, when does the Kool-Aid come out? It was <laughs> a little scary for some of us. Hmm. was a workaholic and he had a reputation for that i'm going to give an example in, in a recording studio he would go into a recording studio and he might literally be in a recording studio for 20 hours and the engineers recording engineers would come and go in shifts because they couldn't keep up Can't hear nothing in, the morning, uh. in his career he had 40 chart albums now his career wasn't even 40 years long so he just kept Doing it. I think I worked for two and a half years straight, almost without any sleep. <laughs> By the time that I left, I was very exhausted because I always wanted to make sure I I gave him what he wanted. I, I wanted it to be successful. And so I never showed up empty-handed, and I never said no. Come on. As a child, Prince made himself a musician through willpower, practicing seven days a week. In Paisley Park, he rehearsed his band the same way. In order to do production rehearsals, we would come in every day and start wearing our complete stage gear, the actual costumes and clothes that we were going to wear on stage. We would start to perform the show. And literally maybe every 30 seconds or every minute, he would then say, stop. Wait a minute. And then we'd say, okay, continue. We'd pick up the song where we left off. We might get another minute into it, and then he'd say, stop. And this would go on and on for eight to ten hours a day, <laughs> day after day. Pack my bag, baby. Leave him at the door. 
addition to being a demanding perfectionist, he was also a better musician than almost anybody in his bands. He was a better drummer than his drummer. He was a better <laughs> bass player than his bassist. He was a better guitar player than his rhythm guitar players. One of the first albums out of Paisley Park was Parade. It featured the single Kiss. Kiss has its very own acoustic, which makes it distinctive. It stands out when it's played on the radio. And it also has a classic intro. All radio programmers used to say, you have to hook your listeners in the first 10 seconds. Otherwise, they'll drift. Well, Kiss, well, fine, you've got them in two seconds. Kiss would be a hit, yet Warner Brothers did not like its stripped-down feel. They thought it would never sell. It's almost the job of record companies to resist the new, because they always want what's already sold. Let's have another one of those. Um, but in fact, the artist always wants to do something new. Try to imagine being Prince. You've already had a decade of album releases. And you don't want to do songs that just sound like the other ones. You want them to sound different. So you have an artist and a record company at odds. Okay, good. Thank you. Prince, uh, this is a sketch. It's a demo. It's not finished, right? Because <laughs> it, it sounds like it was recorded in a basement. <laughs> Maybe we can't put this out. It's not a single. Can't go on the album like this, that's for sure. Hey there, welcome back. We're listening. You're listening to... I'm watching this Prince documentary 2018. Posted five years ago. It's real hard for my dad to show emotion. He never says I love you. Whenever we try to hug or something, we bang our heads together like some Charlie Chaplin movie. So I'm a hugger. I just love to hug people. <laughs> I think it's it's a great way of expressing, you know, your love and openness. I tried it a couple times with Prince. Hmm, strange reaction. He was a person that probably needed and wanted and was craving a hug more than anyone on the planet. And he was so stiff and so shocked. I'm not sure that it had happened much to him before. Uh, it was really an alien experience, and I'm not sure that he really understood how to process it. I do believe that it, it is what he wanted and needed perhaps more than anything. The By the mid-1980s, Prince had three Grammy Awards, five sold-out tours, seven albums, and eight top ten hits. Yet it wasn't making him happy. He says, it's very, very lonely. I know I've got, I'm getting fame and everybody loves my music he says but i'm so lonely he says you're the only person who's ever done anything without wanting something back he says everyone around me seems to want something i don't know what their motivations are but he says i know they all want something for themselves he says i never dreamt that being famous would be so lonely 
The answer for Prince was to build his own protected world, where he would feel secure and loved. In 1985, construction began on Paisley Park in Chanhassen, a suburb of Minneapolis. It was an amazing facility. The upstairs was a wardrobe facility where Prince would go and get fitted for his clothing and had custom-designed costuming. He had an apartment in there, his full recording studio in each one of the Studio A, Studio B, and then a full video and film facility that he could rehearse his concerts inside. So it was like a creative mecca. Mm -hmm. Sounds pretty cool, man. So you can live anywhere, New York or L.A., why come home? Just because I love it here so much. I can go out and not get jumped on. It feels good not to be hassled. On the way up, it becomes harder and harder who you can trust. And I think Minnesotans are kind of a trustworthy bunch of Scandinavians. He wanted that sense of community, and I don't think he was... He would have got that from L.A. or New York, and, and I think that's why he really stayed in, in Minneapolis. Paisley Park cost $10 million to build. A colossal 55,000 square feet, as big as the White House. It was above all where Prince could be Prince. He was 28 years old, and this was the first place he could truly call home. He was known as the Great Gatsby of Minneapolis, or, or even the Willy Wonka and Chocolate Factory. I just remember going out there, you know, the first time. I hadn't seen Prince come out yet or anything but with his band members and everybody else there they just made you feel welcome and made you feel like a part of the family growing up prince's musical talents were ignored by his mother and resented by his father paisley park would house a new kind of family where prince and prince's music would always be front and center prince created uh, this environment which he could control where his studio could be where he lived uh, so you could just get up and make a record uh, you didn't have to go to the record plant or any of the other famous studios and uh, this meant that uh, the people around him were on demand and he could page them and say i want to make a record now prince built a temple to himself surrounded it with a wire fence then expected others around him to follow his path and no other. He would encourage those of us who worked for him at the time that we opened Paisley, that we should all move out to Chanhassen and be nearby. One day we'll have a gated community and we'll all live inside. And it, 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 it got to the point where it was, it was starting to get kind of Howard Hughes, this Jim Jones, this, you know, just like when, do, when, are, when does the Kool-Aid come out? It was a little scary for some of us. was a workaholic and he had a reputation for that to give an example in, in a recording studio he would go into a recording studio and he might literally be in a recording studio for 20 hours and the engineers recording engineers would come and go in shifts because they couldn't keep up Can't hear nothing in, the monitor. in his career he had 40 chart albums now his career wasn't even 40 years long so mm -hmm. he just kept doing it 
it wasn't just a question of of a disagreement among friends it was it was a a you're a traitor you're you're not a believer you're not truly supportive of me yeah i'd feel the same kiss was a top 10 hit in 10 countries Blind faith in his own work justified everything for Prince. In the KISS video, he lives and breathes the music. Not only is he, is he the best mover since James Brown, he's doing it on heels. He was clearly this phenomenon who came to us from a position within music. He was not a human being playing music. He was a channel for music, and it was coming out of him. We would say in the church back in the day, we would say he was anointed. That means that he had that special thing that would just grab you and you were transfixed. Prince was flying in the face of his record company, thrilling his public with new hit songs, whatever the cost. Prince's life was publicly an explosion of excitement. It was lights. It was dancing. It was music. It was rhythm. It was the soul coming out and dancing in full force. But inside, the man was quietly lost, I think quietly sad, and there was a real dichotomy between what the public saw and who was inside. When Prince went on tour, it made everyone happy, including himself. He was touched by angels on stage. He filled huge stadiums, such as the Love Sexy Tour in 1988. And then, when the music ended, the demons returned. The other prince emerged, cold, prickly, setting himself apart. We got to Paris Friday night, it's Good Friday. We go to the clubs and sure enough, they're dead. There's just no action. So about two in the morning, we're sitting in a club in a VIP, and worse, you're in a roped VIP section, of course. So not only is the club dead, but you're dead within the dead. <laughs> and so it's just this, like, drainingly boring situation, and he turns and says, well, you got to admit, it's better than sitting home. He didn't <laughs> drink very much. He had, like, a little brandy. Sometimes he'd like a little brandy. But he, I, I didn't really see him drink it. He probably just sipped it every now and then. And he literally would just sit there. <laughs> and we're, like, dancing to the music. You know, we're trying to not... Because <laughs> the club's, like, the music's going. And he would just be sat there. And we'd spend the night like that in the club. Oh, Prince drink. lived for the stage. He couldn't stop. Playing stadium shows, then smaller gigs late into the night. Addicted to stage. Pulling in the crowd. And so we're there, and he starts playing Purple Rain, and everyone's crying. <laughs> I love that song, we're all going mental. <laughs> don't you sing? And then suddenly he turns around and he says, Don't you sing? So I turn around thinking, Oh, he's talking to someone else. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> I just couldn't even speak. I was like, it was just... We heard 
that song how many times? Like a hundred times, right? Could I remember the whole lyric? I, I was so nervous. All I could remember was the first line. So what I did was I held the note really long because I couldn't remember the rest of the words because I was scared. he was on stage there was a barrier between prince and other people very few were allowed in photographer terry guiderson glimpsed the real prince on tour with him in 1993 her photographs reveal the unhappiness and isolation others did not see twice i think it was that he invited me into his dressing room the first time was when I made these photos of him in the mirror with all of his makeup, and it was just great. Now, we were in Barcelona. I wasn't familiar with the Sagrada Familia Cathedral um, at the time, but we pull up to this massive, amazing-looking place, and the only light on it is coming from the street. Like, it's like 4 or 5 in the morning, and this was... August, so it was that like pre-dawn light that you could just start to see the spires of the cathedral separating from the background. I'm looking at this light, I'm like, oh god, it's dark. And he says, Will your flashlight up the church? <laughs> I'm like, uh no, 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 that's not gonna happen. And I shot about a roll, half roll, whatever. I just watched him, and I just thought, God, this, this must be such a lonely life for him. I can't imagine a life like that. He, he, looked, he looked lonely to me. That year, when he returned from tour, Prince upped the conflict with Warner Brothers, the record label who nurtured him from the beginning. Prince claimed Warner Brothers held him back as an artist. Warners was always trying to slow him down and milk whatever they could out of the current project. They just felt that left to his own devices, he would oversaturate the market. <laughs> now, from a business standpoint, that was a very legitimate position. I agreed with them. From a creative standpoint, it frustrated him terribly. Yeah. Prince wrote, if I can't do what I want to do, what am I? When I ran into him once and he was wearing slave on his cheek and I just just laughed and said, you're the only slave that owns the plantation. <laughs> on CNN, Prince said he was being deliberately confrontational. Once I started writing slave on my face, I pretty much knew the outcome. I mean, you, you have to understand that it, that word on one's face pretty much changes that, the dynamic of any meeting that you're in. Uh, when they see it. And how did people react to you when they did see it? Um, well, the record company didn't really say too much. They just kind of... <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, what's the business at hand today? <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> In 1996, after three years of wrangling, Warner Brothers released Prince from his contract. For three years, I can't believe eh? he's gone.
right at a time in his career when he could be able to just sit back and let the money roll in. <laughs> it just doesn't make any commercial sense. Hmm? He was like a son to me. I was like a dad to him. A number of times I helped him. He's literally going to have to tour for the rest of his life just to pay for this. It will kill him. of the period where he starts calling himself by a symbol and then the artist formerly known as prince he goes farther and farther off in this tree limb of self-definition till he almost falls off and in the 90s his sales do decline as he's going through all of these identity crises and i use the word crisis because nobody would have voluntarily done that to themselves in public who wants to say i am now going to become a symbol <laughs> and a symbol you can hardly print <laughs> i mean who could do that <laughs> prince claimed leaving warners was an emancipation he agreed to talk again to rolling stone to promote his newfound freedom I do what feels good in the moment. I'm not on the schedule. And I don't have any sort of contractual ties. I don't know in history um, any musicians that have been self-sufficient like this. Do you ever feel like retiring? I never felt like I had a job. Does that make sense? So these words, you know, job, retire, hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's the only thing he had. He never worked a job in his life. <laughs> he didn't have anything else but music. With fewer recording commitments and less pressure from Warners, there was room for Prince to let someone in. In 1996, he married 22-year-old Maite Garcia, a singer and dancer with his band. I think it was a different period in his life um, where he had met his true love and her contribution to all of us is she got him to open up. I think he got to see the sense of what a real life and a marriage and what happiness was about. And she gave us this gift of Prince felt more comfortable and more normal maybe. So he opened up because she encouraged him to open up. Yet if 37-year-old Prince felt he was finally in control of his life, he was wrong. I believe Prince could never find love because he didn't know what love felt like. To heal the pain of his childhood, Prince now said his greatest ambition was to have a child of his own. story icon genius slave. two months after prince married maite garcia she was pregnant when a scan revealed there was a problem with the pregnancy prince refused to accept there was something wrong i'd like you to go to a specialist your options include having a full chromosome test to see what the problem is to have a termination or to go ahead and have the child my wife is not seeing a specialist you're not allowing me to do my job here. 
This is bad news. We have to deal with it. The scan showed the baby had an unusually large head and could be born with serious deformities. Prince insisted the pregnancy must continue, claiming God cured people, not medicine. Mm. On October the 16th, 1996, boy Gregory was born with a rare skull defect, Pfeiffer syndrome. I got the phone call that, um, yeah, the kid was born and severe disabilities and stuff. I don't know if he ever recovered from that, to be honest. He was devastated. Try again. After seven days, the staff said there was nothing more they could do. On October the 23rd, they switched off the life support. Boy Gregory died a few hours later. to say we would have 10 kids together. And I wanted the same. It was my dream to become a mother. So when I found myself pregnant a couple of months after we got married, we were over the moon about it. thing that could have ever happened to us. For me, after that, he wasn't really the same. Didn't really get the phone calls, like, come, come out and hang. It kind of stopped then, around that time. He changed. He changed to me, he changed at that point. very vulnerable and hurt, you know, and you got your kid dying. I mean, what do you do? You know, this kid died. You know, I mean, that's a, that's like, I mean, where does that leave you? It's like you're empty. You're empty. There's nothing. You're just a shell. Hey, man. Prince would not accept the truth. An interview with Oprah Winfrey to celebrate Prince becoming a father Oh was broadcast God. a month after boy Gregory died. Oh my God. On Oprah, Prince behaved as if nothing was wrong. Oh my God. He showed me their newly decorated playroom. And here's my favorite room. The children's to be, the children's to come. Yes, ma'am. The child and you, or just the children? Oh, the children's, yeah. And all those rumors about their baby? Well, the artist shared this with us. It's all good. Never mind what you hear. was never able to tell his son he loved him, just as his father never told him. Maite's next pregnancy ended in a miscarriage. The strain of the two lost pregnancies broke up the marriage. Yeah. Prince would never raise a child of his own. A second marriage to charity worker Manuela Testolina also failed. Relationships seemed doomed. I remember when Kim Basinger had been his significant other for a while, brief while, and had actually come to Minneapolis and was living with him in Minneapolis and holding an office at Paisley Park. Just as suddenly as she appeared, she left. 
kind of overnight. Hmm. And that relationship, for whatever reason, only they know, ended That's abruptly. And he came in my office, as he would often do, and just sat on the desk while we talked about a few things. And I said, hey, man, you okay? How do you think I'd be? Then he walked out. Now, the you, are you okay was compassionate. It was intended as, you want a hug? You know, a brotherly, you okay, dude? And the only thing I could get back was a very snide, how do you think I'd be? After his parents died in 2001 and 2002, Prince became a Jehovah's Witness, a religion sharing many beliefs with the Seventh-day Adventism of his childhood. He didn't get a chance to repair his relationship with his mother and father. And by going back to the church, I feel that he felt that he was making things right. Prince wanted to be cleansed and purified by religion. And in 2003, he underwent a full baptism in his local kingdom hall. I mean, where does that leave you? It's like you're empty. You're empty. There's nothing. You're just a shell. And then somebody comes along and go like, hey, man, look, let me tell you something. Read this under this passage here, you know, or whatever and stuff. And they, and they get them, you know. Hmm. And then you stick with it because it, you, you feel that if you go away from it, that something bad's going to happen to you. <laughs> so let me get this right. You've stopped swearing given up eating meat and drinking alcohol and are refusing to perform any of your racier songs? Well, after four days, you don't want it anymore. It's like this thing um, that says, feed me, feed me. When he realizes it's not going to get fed, it goes away. Prince pushed people away all his life, then looked to God for answers. Even for someone who made records that were thought to be immoral and, and beyond lusty and, and had were responsible for the, the advent of the warning labels on records and that were thought to be immoral and, and beyond lusty and, and had were responsible for the, the advent of the warning someone who made records that were thought to be immoral and, and beyond lusty and, and had were responsible for the, the advent even for some prince pushed people away all his life then looked to god for answers even for someone who made records that were thought to be immoral and, and beyond lusty and, and had were responsible for the, the advent of the warning labels on records and so <sighs> drinking alcohol and are refusing to perform any of your racier songs? Well, after four days, you don't want it anymore. It's like this thing um, that says, feed me, feed me. When you realize it's not going to get fed, Prince pushed people away all his life, then looked to God for answers. Even for someone who made records that were thought to be immoral and, and beyond lusty and, and had were responsible for the, the advent of the warning labels on records and so on and so on, this was a guy who from the beginning of the time I knew him 
had a very conservative moral streak underneath all of that. Both angels and demons were crowding around Prince. The escape was always the music. Yet there would only be a handful more great public performances when Prince would rock the world. In 2004, he guested last minute at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. George Harrison is posthumously inducted. A couple of his bandmates from the Traveling Wilburys, Jeff Lynne and Tom Petty, start While My Guitar Gently Weeps, his Beatles classic. And then, at around minute three, in storms Prince, who's only there because he's being inducted. <laughs> he just takes the song to another level talk about stealing the show i mean he just doesn't get the spotlight on him he just <laughs> consumes the whole thing and for this delicious delirious minute minute 20 seconds he owns the music world one of the greatest solo performances ever and he knows it because at the end he throws his guitar up in the air and uh, he storms off stage as if to say right I've done what I came to do <laughs> beat that <laughs> after that Prince was seen less and less in public he disappeared from view there was little going on now at Paisley Park, just Prince alone writing music and storing it away in a vault. Wow, Prince's vault. Let me so in the Prince's vault. essentially false, except when you go musically. And that's why you start <laughs> to get into a place where if I just stay in the music world... Prince's If I just stay in my music and my thoughts, then I will be okay. It will save me. It was just another way of putting up walls between him and everyone else. He was able to withdraw inside, uh, oftentimes not being seen for long periods of time. No one went back to the root and said, okay, here's how we fix that. It just never got done. If you start building walls, those walls inevitably have to become larger. And then suddenly you realize you're walled in. So you yourself can't get on the other side of that wall. Sure, you're keeping people outside. Sure, you're keeping control over them because you have a big wall. But you're suddenly now isolated behind that wall. January 2013, 54-year-old Prince came on stage during the Grammy Awards, his first big public appearance in six years. He walked with a stick due to severe hip pain caused by years of dancing. And why would he have pain? Died at age 57. Because he was five foot three and wore...
wore heels for decades. Right. And not only wore heels, but danced on heels. And I mean, even that physical act seems impossible to most of us. How can you even do that? He pushed himself so hard physically when he was young that I can't imagine that he wasn't suffering some sort of bodily pain from the speakers I saw him jump off 30 feet, 20 feet. Wow. Every night, you know, just Holy shit. perfect tens. And if they weren't, huh. you'd never know it. So if he landed wrong and it hurt him, you'd never know it. Huh. I can oh. confirm he had surgery on his hips. And it's what happens <laughs> when you jump for 40 years onto heels. That's what happens. It's a work-related injury. Hmm. Prince had a secret. His clean living days were over. As his health collapsed, he started taking a variety of powerful medications to deal with the crippling pain. He was becoming hooked on opioids. In his last interview with Rolling Stone, Prince deflected any questions about addiction. Were you ever self-destructive? Was I ever self-destructive? Do I look self-destructive? <laughs> Prince was ashamed at the end because he had such a reputation for clean living, which was really true. He was vegan. He was so he was ashamed that he was a drug addict. He looked with disdain on those who really lost their careers to, via drugs. I mean, that's the irony with his death is that it was drug-related because there were no drugs going on when I was on that concert. This is a very tough demon to awesome. overcome. And it doesn't make you a wild oh, addict, you know, or anything like that. You get First on this measure. treadmill of this stuff, and it's one of the leading killers today in the United States. It's just, it, it, it just what it is. Somebody says, I can fix your hip, so here, you, you're you here, so you feel better. Hello, darlings. How you doing? How you doing? Yeah. You're able to perform. It still hurts the hip a couple days later. You take another one. And you're now taking four a day, five a day. Suddenly, everything else starts to break down. Mind, body, spirit starts <laughs> to break down because of the heaviness of this narcotic. Mm. So then what happens? Now you need it. Because everything hurts. It hurts to breathe. It hurts to wake up. It hurts to go Man, to sleep. You should have worn some sensible shoes time to time. <laughs> Should have worn some sensible shoes from time to time. BBC One, In BBC January 2016, two. Prince tried to end the rumors of ill health by announcing he was back in the game with his solo piano and microphone tour. Maybe this was his way of saying, I'm trying. <laughs> 
musician friend you know, really I'm saying like he was I'm trying to come back let me you know just do these songs this is what I like to do at this time of night some of these songs get real emotional for me real emotional I remember Prince having a full-on band huge production and suddenly here he was with just his piano I couldn't believe it. I'd never seen him stripped down like that. And then you think his father was the one that taught him how to play the piano. Mm-hmm. So he's gone all the way back to try to recreate that moment. When I was a boy, I thought I'd never be able to play like my dad. And boy, he never missed an opportunity to let me know about it. At 57, the same old demons were still haunting Prince, talking about his father, singing about his mother. Sometimes, sometimes, like a motherless child. Prince was performing motherless child in his later years. Sometimes, appearing like a motherless child. Clearly, this all went to his background and his issues with his mother and father. Oh, poor guy. <clears throat> Too isolated. It was so apparent to me that his life had come full circle. I, oh. I saw it just stripping That's it down sad. to me. He was literally stripping everything away, preparing himself to go. Sometimes. Yes. Prince launched the tour in the safety of Paisley Park, then took it on the road just like the old days. But then things started to go wrong. On April the 14th, Prince flew home from two shows in Atlanta. 3,000. Prince passed out and could not be revived. He was with singer Judith Hill and his bodyguard Kirk Johnson. One male passenger, jet 990. At 1.18am, Prince's private jet made an emergency landing in Moline, Illinois, just 48 minutes by air from Minneapolis. Prince's medical issues, clearly some kind of overdose, were so acute they couldn't wait. On Prince's person, medics found fentanyl, a painkiller, lidocaine, a local anesthetic, and U4770, a synthetic drug eight times more powerful than morphine. he carried with him were prescribed more powerful than morphine fentanyl a painkiller lidocaine a local anesthetic and u4770 a synthetic drug eight times more powerful than morphine prince pulled through just later it became clear the pills he carried with him were prescribed to someone else they were mislabeled as being weaker than they really were 
Oh Prince was in denial and others were colluding. The bigger you become, the more people say yes to you. And I've kind of nicknamed... Where they, they really fucking were. poisoned him? Prince was in just. Later, it became clear the pills he carried with him were prescribed to someone else. They were mislabeled as being weaker than they really were. Prince was weaker. in denial and others were colluding. Then the bigger you become, the more people say yes to really you. And I kind of nicknamed it death by yes. The person who stands up to you and says no is the person who cares the most. Where did he get them from? I remember hearing voices from afar and saying to myself, follow the voices, follow the voices, get back in your body. It was a near-death experience for Prince, and it was covered up. Then I heard about the emergency landing of the plane on the Friday night and was concerned and got in touch with um, someone at Paisley who I knew and was assured that he was in fact okay that he was back in Minneapolis that it had been a scare but he was okay and but it, it was the kind of it was the kind of it was almost like I was hearing a press release it was even though I knew this person it, there was something else going on that, that I could you know I could tell two days later Prince insisted a late night performance at Paisley Park must go ahead yet he seemed fragile this is the first thing my dad told me how to play. <laughs> Something really was was off about that night. You know, a lot of us weren't really kind of dancing. It was just kind of a, a a mediocre type type mood in a way. Where I remember when he showed us the piano. And he started playing chopsticks. Yeah, something kind of like clicked in me. Like, you know, am I seeing Prince play for the last time? And then Prince said something his fans would never forget. Save your prayers for a couple of days. I'm here and I'm okay. was still using medication. On Wednesday, April the 19th, witnesses saw Prince dressed in black pacing a parking lot outside a pharmacy in a mall near his home. He looked worried and upset. It was the last time he was seen alive. Uh. Early the following morning, Thursday, April the 21st, there was a surprise visitor to Paisley Park, Andrew Cornfield, a young medical student. He was sent by his father, an addiction specialist. Worried by Prince's drug use, he asked his son to look in on Prince. Yeah, the next morning. Address here. I'm um, getting an ambulance right now. 
Uh, we have someone who's unconscious. Okay, what's the address? Um, uh, we're at Prince's house. Okay, does anybody know the address? Is there any mail around that you could look at? Yeah, yeah, okay, hold on. Your cell phone's not gonna tell me where you're at, so I need you to find me an address. Yeah, we have, um... Okay, get me the address, please. Helpful. Uh, so, so the person's dead here. Emergency services in Minneapolis arrived on the scene at 9.43 a.m. At 10.07 a.m., Prince Rogers Nelson was pronounced dead. Good evening. Music fans everywhere are reacting to the stunning loss of pop superstar Prince, one of music's most unique and dynamic performers, who gave us such hits as Purple Rain and Little Red Corvette. I just can't believe it's true. I just can't believe it. I just can't believe he's gone. On June the 2nd, 2016, the autopsy report was published. Prince died of a fentanyl overdose, a synthetic morphine 50 times stronger than heroin. There was no one in the immediate arena that could say, this stops right now. And so you end up what you end up with. Tragic and awful and surprising and hurtful. And everybody's at a loss to truly explain it. The toughest thing for me to hear was that he died alone in an elevator after having an incident on an airplane. That told me that there were too many yeses and not enough knows at the expense of somebody's life. I'm not blaming someone for his death by any means. You, what you do, you do to yourself. But it told me that there were too many yeses. I'm screaming in my car. In my car. Prince! Screaming at the top of my voice. What? Why? What? Because I couldn't understand it. I couldn't get past it, you know? It was just a shock. I, I just couldn't believe it. So looking down the road, is there an endpoint? It's just so nice to know that there is someone in some place else. spent I at least had some reason to spend it Prince spent his entire adult life making music yet the music could not save him I'm not sure that having helped make Prince famous and help make Prince achieve his dreams was ultimately what he needed and all I had done is introduce him to a nice girl and he had had a couple of children and gone to work at the factory and grew up as an old man sitting on his rocking chair never famous i think perhaps maybe i would have been more proud of that i believe i can say for sure that prince was the loneliest person i ever met in my life <laughs> to call him the lonely guy. <laughs>
because we didn't want him to be lonely. He had all his friends here. We are the people that loved him.